This is Chris McGregor. The work of Discerning Hearts really could not continue without your prayers and support. Between now and December 31st, please consider making a year-end tax-deductible gift. Click the Donate button on DiscerningHearts.com or inside the Discerning Hearts free app. Your generous support will allow us to continue the programming you have come to expect from us, like those from Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Monsignor John Essif, Archbishop George Lucas, and so many more. Please prayerfully consider supporting our mission, which is dedicated to those on the spiritual journey. Thank you, and God bless from all of us at Discerning Hearts. DiscerningHearts.com, in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha, presents Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. Pope Francis, in his encyclical letter, Lumen Fidei, The Light of Faith, said that Face past, the act of Jesus' love which brought new life to the world, comes down to us through the memory of others, witnesses, and is kept alive in that one remembering subject, which is the Church. The Church is a mother who teaches us to speak the language of faith. In that spirit, this series of conversations with Archbishop Lucas brings the many aspects of the Catholic faith and why it matters not only to the individual, but also to families, communities, and the world at large. Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. The Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican commonly known as the Second Vatican Council, or Vatican II, was the 21st Ecumenical Council of the Roman Catholic Church. Some have called it the most important religious event of the 20th century. The Council met in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome for four periods, or sessions, each lasting between 8 to 12 weeks, in the autumn of each of the four years, 1962 to 1965. Preparation for the Council took three years from the summer of 1959 to the autumn of 1962. The Council was opened on the 11th of October 1962 by John XXIII, who was Pope during the preparation and the first session. And it was closed on the 8th of December 1965 by Pope Paul VI, Pope during the last three sessions after the death of John XXIII on the 3rd of June 1963. During the course of the subsequent episodes of this program, we'll cover the major conciliar documents that were issued from the Council Fathers, chiefly known as the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy, Sacrosanctum Concilium, the Dogmatic Constitution on the Liturgy, Lumen Gentium, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, De Verbum, and the Pastoral Constitution on the Church in the Modern World, Gaudium et Spaz. We now continue our introductory conversation on Vatican II with Archbishop George Lucas. Yeah, it was a very unique council, too. I mean, we just briefly touched upon that there had been others in the past. But even the calling forth of this council coming from the Holy Father, Pope John Twenty-Third, is different than, say, the Council of Nicaea, where Constantine, who is the emperor, is trying to foster peace. He's trying to get factions to stop fighting. 
So he calls them together, and the document comes out. While it's a lovely document and has really nourished the church, it is a bit more succinct and more governing as far as this is what we believe, this is what you don't believe, and it's very telling that way because he's trying to find, through the church, order. Vatican II is a little different in, in that approach because here we have the Holy Father, and he's responding to a need, and it's much more pastoral. I mean, reading the documents of Vatican II, they're long. There's Some of them are many pages, but it's without that necessarily bump, bump, bump. Wouldn't you think that's one of the reasons why St. John Paul II would call for a catechism to give that type of governance as opposed to what Vatican II pastoral aim? Yeah, I mean, I think those of us who grew up in the pre Vatican II world. I, w- I was in eighth grade when it started in the council, first session of the council. So I was taught in my grade school years, very formative years, in a very well-ordered church and the well-ordered set of teachings. So the church wasn't falling apart in that sense. This was coming already. So a previous pope saw the, how is the church going to have her proper influence in, in the world? Not simply how are we going to take care of ourselves? So really the, the recent popes have helped us see that the, the Second Vatican Council is a missionary council. It's helping us still to discover that, that we're called to be missionary disciples of Jesus Christ, not simply taking care of the good order of the church, which is important that we have, but what's our responsibility going out? You know, How do we individually, but how does the church herself relate to the world? Not uh, as equals, you might say, but the church is a unique uh, manifestation of God's saving love in our Savior Jesus Christ. And so what's, what's the unique thing, the unique gift that the church brings to the world for, for the sake of so it's, it's much more outward directed, beginning from a place I think many would say of good order. And unsettling for some, we go out you know, to, to do this work of evangelization, which the Lord himself gives us, and uh, it can be messy uh, sometimes, and it's not so well ordered. But we must do it, and we must be equipped to do it, and this, I think, really was the hope of Pope John, Pope Paul VI, too, and, really, and all the, of the fathers of the council, that we'd be able to equip disciples to the, the work of the mission of the church. Yeah, and to respond to the needs of the people. What do the people need? How can we nourish them? And I I mean, then you see that over and over again, I think, and really dive deep into the documents. I never had appreciation of this until the last maybe 10 or 20 years. But how global we are, how diverse the people of God are, and it's, it's a great mystery. For example, it's been said that in the United States, we comprise of... 4% 4% of the Catholics that are in the, in the church, uh, 2% from Western Europe. That leaves 94% of the church throughout the world comes from probably more than likely third world countries. Their experiences, how they not only experience the church, but experience the world is so different in so many different ways. And so to bring everybody together to listen in some ways, it, it takes a lot of organization, but it also takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? Convene the council. You know, yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, of course, this was the most diverse because the gospel had spread farther into diverse cultures. All one world for Jesus. You know, there's not a first world and a second world. But I think that, as just as you're saying, there was an experience of that, at the, certainly for those who were there at the council, but for others who would observe it or experience its effects. For the first time, there was quite a, a diversity in terms of the voices and the experiences that were, that were brought, all of them valid expressions of the church. That all comes together, and the Holy Spirit helps shape the deliberations and the prayerfulness and the writing 
so that it can then go out to, to this diverse world, same gospel, the same Jesus Christ, one holy Catholic and apostolic church every in, in all corners, but be able to, to respond, as you said, to the needs of people in, in a variety of circumstances and meet them where they are. And that's the beginning with the incarnation. That's We see very clearly that's God's plan, that he, he wants to meet us where we are and then invite us to take a, a step in the direction of Jesus and in, in the direction of life. I'm so impressed by just with Vatican II, you mentioned how they had to build bleachers, literally, in St. Peter's. It's a big place. It can handle bleachers. Just to imagine that, and it really speaks of a collegiality that some might say prior to what happened at Vatican II maybe wasn't as clearly defined, that voice of the bishops trying to organize, now that we can, now that there's the means to be able to communicate almost immediately, where before it was anywhere from days to months to be able to get correspondence, now to be able to communicate together. And how's that going to look as far as how that governance that played a dynamic in this as well. Yeah, as we said, it's, communication was more instantaneous and it was well covered by the press, Catholic media and other secular media uh, as well. It's well established in the history of the church that an ecumenical council, so the Holy Father and the bishops of the church, teaching together is authoritative teaching. So that's been part of our history. This wasn't unique or it wasn't the first one of those by, by any means. It was a 20th century council. So people could travel to get there. There was a way to put them all up somewhere accommodate them. The communication within the group, but also out uh, to the world was was much more readily uh, available and and, and possible than had been experienced in in the past. I'm not sure what it would have been like if they would have had social media like we do today. I think it was probably better (laughs) in terms of being a thoughtful coverage and reflection on on what was happening there. But it was was the time that it was, and and there were some new opportunities, and and I think the church took, took advantage of them. You know, in terms of of the meeting place, they could, there were other places they could have met, but there was is something beautiful, prayerful about meeting in in St. Peter's Basilica in that sacred setting, uh, highlighting for those who are there, but also for the rest of us the sacred nature of what they're doing. I remember talking to my mother in law about that because I was just a child; I was very small. I think I was only a year or two old, so I, I wasn't aware of the actual meetings happening, but she would tell me that they were just amazed that they could turn on the nightly news and there are pictures and hearing about every single aspect of what was happening. And it captivated the world for the church. And it, yes, it, exactly. And it wasn't only the news. That, you know, There was that media coverage. But there was an effort in uh, most dioceses, certainly was our experience in St. Louis, where I grew up, on the part of the church to help draw people into the life of the council, you might say. It wasn't, we weren't participating in, you know, having a voice. But as the various documents were, were published to help acquaint people, there was a, an effort in St. Louis called Operation Renewal. There was probably something similar in other, in other places. But there were study guides that were published, and then groups of people came together. My parents were part of a group. I, I remember there were maybe five or six other couples that didn't have to be couples, but in that case it wasn't. During each session of the council, they would meet for like six weeks in a row, maybe six Fridays or something, they'd have questions to kind of reflect on a time of prayer. They would go to different people's house and bring food. And so it was a social aspect to it. There was an invitation, which many people responded to, as I recall, to, to, um, to, to kind of get into, into the council to, and to receive it 
and receive the teachings as, as they actually were, not only through the media, but to read the words of the council. It would be digested for them, you know, in a, but in a way that, that, that regular folks could, uh, could study and pray about. It was, though, as you described, you know, for ordinary Catholics, an extraordinary event and, and experience. Nobody had been around when, when there had been a previous one. As I said, in the United States, there was this experience of, of great vitality and stability at the same time. All the while that there was a churning in the, in the secular culture that was not so discernible, perhaps, within the church. Again, it was obvious, an obvious need for renewal in missionary countries or in places where the Second World War had had such a powerful impact. The need for a renewal of gospel life and gospel living was perhaps more obvious in those places. But for everybody, it was extraordinary because it didn't happen all the time and it never happened in anyone's lifetime. We'll return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas in just a moment. Did you know that Discerning Hearts has a free app in which you can find all your favorite Discerning Hearts programming? Father Timothy Gallagher, Dr. Anthony Lillis, Deacon James Keating, Mike Aquilina, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, and so many more are found on the Discerning Hearts free app. Did you also know that you can stream Discerning Hearts programming on numerous streaming platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and so many more. And did you know that Discerning Hearts also has the YouTube page? Be sure to check out all these different places where you can find Discerning Hearts. The Creed I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried, and rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hello, my name is Deacon Omar Gutierrez, and I want to ask you to support Discerning Hearts in a special way. We, Chris McGregor, the board, and I all know that not everyone listening can help financially. 
We know we have listeners from all parts of the world, and we have made a commitment since the beginning to make the truths shared through Discerning Hearts totally free. So while you may not be able to contribute financially, what you can do is certainly pray, but also give us positive reviews on whatever platform you use to listen to us. If it's iTunes, Android, Stitcher, Spotify, however it is that you get these podcasts, or if you're on YouTube and you like our videos, please give us a good rating and write a review. The more good ratings and reviews we get, the higher our profile, and the more listeners will discover us, listeners who may have the means to contribute in the future. Please consider rating us and writing a positive review today. We now return to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. In some conversations now on Vatican II, because maybe lost that sense of history or that context, that we just see it as, again, a meeting, which it was, but something that was occurring that was being just implemented, procedurals and all these different things on the people. And it's lost that sense of unbelievable shared prayer around the world. I mean, as you said, in your own diocese and parishes and homes, and even the servant of God, Dorothy Day, got herself over to Rome just so she could just pray in the city during the time. I mean, this is quite an extraordinary time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're still living in the time of the council, you might say. There hasn't been another one, so we're, we're still living off of, of this one, and we should. As you say, it wasn't just designed to publish stuff or to get people to do things, but it, it was an opportunity for a reconnection with the, the roots of our faith and then accepting a challenge to bring the light of the gospel in, into the world in some circumstances that hadn't existed in, in this particular way. The, the world continues to present challenges, it always will, but there's some very significant ones. And I claim this for myself, I still feel like I'm running to catch up with what the council was hoping, hoping for me, but also asking of me. Those type of workings of the Holy Spirit, I mean, it is not, you look at scripture studies right now, people are still diving very deeply into scripture, and what is God communicating through those sacred texts? Now, of course, the documents of Vatican II and the teachings are not on the same par as sacred scripture, but something that extraordinary moment in the life of the church and salvation history is Vatican II. It's going to take time, maybe more than just our generation or even another generation before we really grasp it. That's true. And then then we may need another one, another council. It has had an effect. You just give the example of um, people studying scripture. The, The number of people who are in Bible study groups and who are studying scripture in a variety of ways, who use the the scriptures for their own prayer, whether in group settings or privately, the the proclamation of the scriptures and the focus of the homilies at Mass on the sacred scriptures, that's all an experience that wasn't part of the life of most people before the the councils. That doesn't mean that the church was dead or that people weren't doing anything, but this uh, acquaintance with the word of God and scripture and we believe we meet Jesus there, you know, so it's not, we're not simply trying to figure out what's in the book. We're trying to meet the Lord and he reveals himself to us in all of this. There have been some profound effects which people coming up in the church now kind of take for granted that we'll be using the scripture and we'll be praying with it and people will have the chance to, to study it together and in groups, but that wasn't really an experience much before the council. One of the things, I'm, now I'm jumping to the end, the Great Commission from the council and gathering all of the bishops was to uh, send them back out 
to be the implementers, the communicators, the shepherds or the people of all of this. And that is essentially in your role now and in your brother bishops. That's your task. Immediately after the Second Vatican Council, some of the implementation, there are those who chose a different way to implement things. I'm trying to be very tactful. That maybe yeah. time. Yeah, was, well, let's say it was uneven. There yeah. you go. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I, I think that's fair to say. Yeah. yeah, the bishops were sent out, and they were in uh, not all of the same mind, you know, in, in terms of the value of the council or the value of various aspects of it. Some were better at implementing it than others. I would say, if, maybe if anything, some of the implementation went too fast, and there wasn't the time for it, for things to be appropriated and for the teaching to really take root. But we see that it, it is going now over several generations. We've had wonderful guidance and, and teaching from the popes during that time, and I think they've been very focused on their responsibility and, and privilege to help form the church according to the, to the council in, in really true and, and good and, and, and faith-filled ways. They each have done that a little bit differently, but, it, but it's all been really rich and all connected. You know, it's not just one, one person's bright idea about something, but, but really mining the riches of the council and of its, of its teachings so that the church can move confidently, faithfully, uh, hopefully, into the future and, and be in the world as the Lord had, has sent us without being of the world. Well, that's why I'm extraordinarily grateful, along with so many others, that you have taken the time to be able to help, just kind of guide us along and help us to become, if some cases, reacquainted and some being introduced for the first time, just the beauty of this gift that was given to us by the church. And I mean the big church, the mother church, something for us to be able to to glean from. And I think, thank you so much for that, Archbishop. You're welcome. Lots of people talk in the church about the Vatican too, but it's it's really is important that we know what the council really has taught, what what the council offers us. And unless the Lord comes again, we'll probably have another one someday, you know, (laughs) because the the world keeps turning Mm -hmm. and the church needs to keep responding. You know, that was Pope John's idea, and it's been important in every age that the church not become calcified or, or, or so rigid that, that she's not able to respond to, to new needs with our ancient and beautiful faith. And I'm looking forward, too, to the future episodes in our conversations by looking at the different constitution, the documents, and not so much to do a study per se, but to kind of open the door in different areas. Because today, there's no reason why someone right now cannot get online and begin the quest, begin to read these workings themselves. It's so accessible now. It's almost as though God has just said, it's right here. You're going to walk through that door. Yeah, and maybe we can just help folks know what to look for in the various documents without dismissing any parts of them, but but mm-hmm. there's usually a central theme or several central themes. Maybe we can help, help focus on those. and then. But really, uh, my invitation will continue to be for, for anyone who wishes to to pick up the document and read it or go online and read it. I have an old book with yellow pages <laughs> that, that I've had for a long time, the council documents, but uh, they're very accessible online. My copy is equally as yellowed, so there you go. So thank you so much, Archbishop. I I think this is a time where we really need this, as opposed to hearing some others. If you were hearing things about Vatican II, or maybe some of the teachings that kind of are a ping or disturbing, go back and read it for yourself. Don't necessarily always take somebody else's word for it. 
Although I'd take your word for it anytime, Archbishop. Oh, well, I look forward to our conversations and we'll try to be faithful to, to what, the, what the council is actually telling us. And I think something good can come from that. You've been listening to Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas. To hear and or to download this episode, along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts in cooperation with the Archdiocese of Omaha. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax-deductible, to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about DiscerningHearts.com and join us next time for Why It Matters, an exploration of faith with Archbishop George Lucas.